Welcome to Bite at a Time Books Behind the Story, where we answer the questions you have about your favorite classic authors. What inspired your favorite author to write their novels? What was going on in the world at the time? Follow along with us as we tell you what was happening in the world while your favorite authors wrote your favorite classics. My name is Bree Carlisle, and I love to read and wanted to share my passion with listeners like you. If you want to know what's coming next and vote on upcoming books, sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com. Be sure to follow my show on your favorite podcast platform so you get all the new episodes. You can find most of our links in the show notes, but also our website, biteatatimebooks.com, includes all of the links for our show, including to our Patreon to support the show and YouTube, where we have special behind the narration of the episodes. We're part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you'd also like to hear a book by the author, check out the Bite at a Time Books podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Today we'll be talking about the early life of Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens was born on 7 February 1812 at One Mile End Terrace, now 393 Commercial Road, Landport in Portsea Island, Portsmouth, Hampshire, the second of eight children of Elizabeth Dickens, nay Barrow, 1789-1863, and John Dickens, 1785 to 1851. His father was a clerk in the Navy Pay Office and was temporarily stationed in the district. He asked Christopher Huffham, rigor to His Majesty's Navy, gentleman and head of an established firm, to act as godfather to Charles. Huffham is thought to be the inspiration for Paul Nombi, the owner of a shipping company in Dickens's novel Dombey and Son, 1848. In January 1815, John Dickens was called back to London, and the family moved to Norfolk Street, Fitzrovia. When Charles was four, they relocated to Sheerness, and thence to Chatham, Kent, where he spent his formative years until the age of 11. His early life seems to have been idyllic, though he thought himself a very small and not overly particularly taken care of boy. Charles spent time outdoors, but also read voraciously, including the picturesque novels of Tobias Smollett and Henry Fielding, as well as Robinson Crusoe and Gil Blas. He read and reread The Arabian Nights and the collected farces of Elizabeth Inchbald. At the age of seven, he first saw Joseph Grimaldi, the father of modern clowning, perform at the Star Theatre Rochester. He later imitated Grimaldi's clowning on several occasions, and would also edit the memoirs of Joseph Grimaldi. He retained poignant memories of childhood, helped by an excellent memory of people and events which he used in his writing. His father's brief work as a clerk in the Navy pay office afforded him a few years of private education, first at a dame school, and then at a school run by William Giles, a dissenter in Chatham. This period came to an end in June 1822, when John Dickens was recalled to Navy Pay Office headquarters at Somerset House, and the family, except for Charles, who stayed behind to finish his final term at school, moved to Camden Town in London. The family had left Kent amidst rapidly mounting debts, and living beyond his means, John Dickens was forced by his creditors into the Marshall Sea Debtors Prison in Southwark, London, in 1824. His wife and youngest children joined him there, as was the practice at the time, Charles, then 12 years old, boarded with Elizabeth Roylance, a family friend at 112 College Place, Camden Town. 
Mrs. Roylance was a reduced, impoverished old lady, long known to our family, whom Dickens later immortalized with a few alterations and embellishments as Mrs. Pipchin in The Dombey and Son. Later, he lived in a back attic in the house of an agent for the insolvent court, Archibald Russell, a fat, good-natured, kind old gentleman, with a quiet old wife and lame son in Lance Street in Southwark. They provided the inspiration for the garlands in the old curiosity shop. On Sundays, with his sister Frances, free from her studies at the Royal Academy of Music, he spent the day at the Marshall Sea. Dickens later used the prison as a setting in Little Dorrit to pay for his board and to help his family. Dickens was forced to leave school and work 10-hour days at Warren's Blacking Warehouse on Hungerford Stairs, near the present Charing Cross Railway Station, where he earned six shillings a week pasting labels on pots of boot blacking. The strenuous and often harsh working conditions made a lasting impression on Dickens, and later influenced his fiction and essays, becoming the foundation of his interest in the reform of socioeconomic and labor conditions, the rigors of which he believed were unfairly borne by the poor. He later wrote that he wondered how I could have been so easily cast away at such an age, as he recalled to John Forster from Life of Charles Dickens. The blacking warehouse was the last house on the left side of the way, at Old Hungerford Stairs. It was a crazy, tumble-down old house, abutting, of course, on the river, and literally overrun with rats. Its wainscoted rooms and its rotten floors and staircase and the old gray rats swarming down in the cellars, and the sound of their squeaking and scuffling coming up the stairs at all times, and the dirt and decay of the place rising up visibly before me, as if I were there again. The counting house was on the first floor, looking over the coal barges and the river. There was a recess in it in which I was to sit and work. My work was to cover the pots of paste blacking, first with a piece of oil paper, and then with a piece of blue paper to tie them round with a string, and then to clip the paper close and neat all round, until it looked as smart as a pot of ointment from an apothecary shop. When a certain number of grosses and pots had attained this pitch of perfection, I was to paste on each a printed label, and then go on again with more pots. Two or three other boys were kept at similar duty downstairs on similar wages. One of them came up in a ragged apron and a paper cap on the first Monday morning to show me the trick of using the string and tying the knot, his name was Bob Thagan, and I took the liberty of using his name long afterwards in Oliver Twist. When the warehouse was moved to Chando Street in the smart, busy district of Covent Garden, the boys worked in a room in which the window gave onto the street. Small audiences gathered and watched them at work. In Dickens's biographer Simon Callow's estimation, the public display was a new refinement added to his misery. A few months after his imprisonment, John Dickens's mother, Elizabeth Dickens, died and bequeathed him 450 pounds. On the expectation of this legacy, Dickens was released from prison. Under the Insolvent Debtors Act, Dickens arranged for payment of his creditors, and he and his family left the Marshall Sea for the home of Mrs. Roylance. Charles's mother, Elizabeth Dickens, did not immediately support his removal from the bootblacking warehouse. This influenced Dickens's view that a father should rule the family and a mother find her proper sphere inside the home. I never afterwards forgot. I shall never forget. I never can forget that my mother was warm for my being sent back. His mother's failure to request his return was a factor in his dissatisfied attitude towards women. 
Righteous indignation, stemming from his own situation and the conditions under which working-class people lived, became major themes of his works. And it was this unhappy period in his youth to which he alluded in his favorite and most autobiographical novel, David Copperfield. I had no advice, no counsel, no encouragement, no consolation, no assistance, no support of any kind from anyone that I can call to mind, as I hope to go to heaven. Dickens was eventually sent to the Wellington House Academy in Camden Town, where he remained until March 1827, having spent about two years there. He did not consider it to be a good school. Much of the haphazard, desultory teaching, poor discipline punctuated by the headmaster's sadistic brutality, the seedy ushers and general rundown atmosphere are embodied in Mr. Krilk's establishment in David Copperfield. Dickens worked at the law office of Ellison Blackmore, attorneys of Holdham Court, Gray's Inn, as a junior clerk from May 1827 to November 1828. He was a gifted mimic and impersonated those around him, clients, lawyers, and clerks. He went to theaters obsessively. He claimed that, for at least three years, he went to the theater every day. His favorite actor was Charles Matthews, and Dickens learned his monopolyogs, farces in which Matthews played every character, by heart. Then, having learned Gurney's system of shorthand in his spare time, he left to become a freelance reporter. A distant relative, Thomas Charlton, was a freelance reporter at Doctors Commons, and Dickens was able to share his box there to report the legal proceedings for nearly four years. This education was to inform works such as Nicholas Nickleby, Dombey and Son, and especially Bleak House, whose vivid portrayal of the machinations and bureaucracy of the legal system did much to enlighten the general public and served as a vehicle for dissemination of Dickens's own views regarding particularly the heavy burden on the poor who were forced by circumstances to go to law. In 1830, Dickens met his first love, Maria Beadnell, thought to have been the model for the character Dora in David Copperfield. Maria's parents disapproved of the courtship and ended the relationship by sending her to school in Paris. Thank you for joining Bite at a Time Books behind the story today. While we answered some of the questions you have about one of your favorite classic authors. Again, my name is Brie Carlisle. And I hope you come back next time when we answer more questions about one of your favorite classic authors. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com. Check out the show notes or our website, biteatatimebooks.com, for the links for our show.